This podcast may include adult content. Bound Off is an independent, nonprofit audio magazine committed to paying authors for their work. To join us in our mission of broadcasting great stories to a worldwide audience, please consider dropping us a dollar or two at boundoff.com donate. Support for this episode comes from the Loft Literary Center, located in Minneapolis, Minnesota, one of the nation's leading literary nonprofits, offering a wide array of online creative writing classes for all levels and genres. Online classes are offered seasonally. Find out how to register at loft.org. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories. The Graziers by Joe Farley and The Winter of the Frozen Moon by Bob Thurber. The Graziers, written by Joe Farley, read by Mark Rushton. Listening time, 5 minutes, 22 seconds. We were at the onset of our teen years, about 10 or so of us, wild in the streets during the summer before our 8th grade year. Our fathers worked blue-collar jobs at nearby steel mills and manufacturing plants. Some of our moms toiled the conveyor belts at factories for eight hours a day, while the others filed away as secretaries. There we huddled, at the crossroads of being too young to have jobs, but old enough to crave money to fill the potholes of boredom. We couldn't even scrounge up the two dollars each it cost to jump in the public pool. Born from the marriage of heat and listless idling was a hardened state of making do with whatever our surroundings happened to be. Typically, There were only two houses we'd pile together at and spend the rest of the day. At one of the houses, my friend's grandma would appear from the basement. She spoke no English and resembled the image of what I thought a gypsy looked like when I imagined one. Scarves wrapped around her head, a shawl-looking garment from feet to neck, and a broom in her hand that she'd shake at us while rattling off hyper-screams of Macedonian, like a Southeast European auctioneer. One nickname she would address all of us by, I'd learned by the loose translation of, was, quote, cattle of all cattle. She was right. We were animals. It wasn't often, but sometimes my house was the one everyone would meet up and hang out. It made me nervous to have anyone over because my parents were pretty strict. And as my mom and dad would pull in the driveway, my friends scattered, and I'd be left to incur a wrath if anything seemed out of the ordinary. Panic droplets of sweat would shoot off my forehead, as if I were a character in a comic strip, watching my friend Pete sink his index finger into a brand new pack of bologna pulling out five pieces of the lunch meat, dangling it over his head, and feeding himself this barbaric treat, like he was the lion and the lion tamer. Hunger was a constant issue. We used the sort of ingenuity inmates apply to liven up their daily existence, learning out of similar desperation. Instead of making liquor from fermented orange juice, we made do with a nearby family fun park called Celebration Station. The place was a sprawl of miniature golf, batting cages, go-karts, and video games. It was also a host to many a kid's birthday party, where you'd be seated next to a stage where curtains jerked back awkwardly and animatronic animals whirred to life as a formed band bedecked in Hawaiian shirts and cowboy hats played instruments and sang birthday-themed music to fidgety bored adults and spastic children. What I don't recall is how we ended up there with no money. What I do remember is why we found a way to keep going back. It was hot out. So we were lazing around on the second floor of the place to cool off. This area usually did not find many people in it except on the weekends. Perfect for a group of idiot kids to take up space in. The left-behind debris of a now-over party sat on a table adjacent to us, half-eaten pizzas, sitting on thin, circular tins. 
one-fourth pitchers of soda, abandoned scraps of garlic bread and cake. I don't think anyone even said anything, not even a, say, what if we... We simply transformed into one mind, body, and spirit vulture, descending upon dismissed heaps of food garbage. Pressing a pitcher of pop to my lips to wash a cram slice down my throat, I paused and took in what I was seeing. We were American soldiers, rations dwindling, having been lost in the blurring jungles of Vietnam, and finally stumbling upon a deserted outpost, flush with ripe-for-the-taking food. Once the thrill began to pass, still eating, we all started laughing like Vikings, squealing at our newly discovered life hack. We all knew our listless days of starving had come to an end. We'd beaten God at his own game. For the next two months, all we needed was a ride to this mini-idea of an, of an amusement park, and we'd fend for ourselves. The balcony became our lookout tower. We'd watch with intensity as a party wound down. To our benefit, whoever had the job of bussing the tables was lazy. There wasn't even a ten count as we scrambled down the stairs and into the waiting arms of shitty free food that tasted like the finest of gourmet dishes to a bunch of poor and deprived 13-year-olds. The only mafia becoming too powerful and too careless moment came when eyeing the only table with inhabitants. Fifteen minutes had passed since they'd arrived. Some of our arms were draped lazily over the second-floor ledge. Business was slow, and we were hungry and bored. Downstairs, all the kids and the parents scurried away to the ball pit and arcades, leaving the table empty and opened. Employees emerged into the empty dining area, hoisting serving trays giant pizzas rode in on. We jolted to life. These people must have ordered in advance. The servers laid out the trays and pitchers on the table. We all looked at each other. Again, no words. My right shoulder bounced off the wall of the stairway as my friend slammed under my left shoulder, bounding down what we sought. Fresh food. We did it. I don't really remember how of it, but we did it. We ate the food and tore away laughing to the batting cages, scot-free, full and out of breath. Cattle grazing on a secret patch of grain. Cattle of all cattle. It's the closest I'll probably ever feel to escaping from prison. The End Joe Farley is a writer and stand-up comedian from Indiana. He stands 6 feet 2 inches while weighing in at 220 pounds. You can find him posting frequently at joefarley.com. The Winter of the Frozen Moon Written by Bob Thurber Read by Ann Rushton Listing time 8 minutes 24 seconds My name is Colleen which is an Irish term for girl, though that's the least important part of this story. In 1970, when I was 14, Rhode Island got slammed by a nor'easter that dumped two feet of snow, burying everything, closing highways, and knocking out power for about 36 hours. In the days following the storm, the weather remained fiercely cold, especially at night and all day the sky was one big, dull, seamless gray cloud. A rumor started that the sun had taken a holiday, gone to one of the Pacific Islands, and was considering never coming back. It was a joke, of course. People laughed when someone said it. But I began to wonder if perhaps it was true, because more snow came. 
Another small storm hit every other day. Whatever had been cleared or shoveled had to be cleared and shoveled again. The air became so cold that the snow was a fine dry powder that wouldn't stick to anything, not even itself. Every day I used a broom to sweep the cement steps and walkway. The wind gusted, and the cold stung my face, and the snow swirled like dust, sometimes making shapes that rose from the ground and moved around me like ghosts. And whenever I looked at the sky, I saw that the moon was always in the same place. I began to suspect that the moon had frozen solid in the sky. At first I wasn't convinced, so I kept checking. I used a soft tip marker to draw a circle on the kitchen window to measure the spot. And every time I looked, I felt sick. Day or night, the moon remained within my circle. I mentioned this to no one, of course, not even my mother, who already had enough to worry about. And I suspected it was bad manners to mention the frozen moon in the same way that it was improper and impolite to talk of my father's passing. I understood this because my teachers not once spoke about either event, and neither did my friends. No one mentioned the missing sun or the frozen moon on the radio or TV, not even on the nightly news with Walter Cronkite. For a while, life went on like it always does. Then one Sunday, we went to church. We hadn't attended a service since before my father's death. The chapel was crowded. People were squeezed into every pew. We found a spot in a middle pew. People had to move. I sat and breathed the stench of perfume and sweat. I filled my nostrils with the odor of packed humanity. In the middle of the sermon, my mother stood up and said, That's all very good, but shouldn't we be focusing our attention on the problem at hand? Shouldn't we be working together to build a ladder long enough to reach the moon? How long are we going to sit here and pretend nothing is wrong? Shouldn't one of us volunteer to climb up there and have a good look around? Perhaps nothing can be done. But aren't we obligated to try to do something? During her speech, a murmur of voices rippled through the congregation, but as soon as she stopped talking and sat down again, the minister cleared his throat, and everyone shut up. No one looked at my mother, though it felt to me like the whole world was watching. After a short silence, the minister stepped away from his pulpit. He adjusted his robe as he moved down the steps of the altar. With his hands in front of him, just his fingertips touching, he came directly down the aisle, stopped at our pew, then knelt on the carpet. He held his hands together and silently prayed. People had turned their heads to watch. I saw them all close their eyes to pray along with him. Then I looked at my mother and saw that her eyes were open, her jaw tight, her mouth a flat line. After a long minute or two, the minister stood up and turned around. He briefly glanced at my mother and me. He had made a great speech at my father's funeral service and another shorter speech when the coffin was lowered into the ground, but he didn't seem to have anything new to say. On his walk back to the altar, he spread his arms and turned his hands upward, giving a signal. The organist played a sustained note and the congregation burst into song. They were still singing their heads off as my mother led me quietly out the side door. I didn't ask what her outburst was about. 
I wanted to know, but didn't feel it was my place to question her. I was pretty sure it had something to do with my father. We hiked across town to the cemetery to stand and stare at his grave for 20 or 30 minutes. A small plaque marked the spot. The plaque looked like metal, but if you touched it, you could tell it was plastic. My mother was supposedly saving up to buy a headstone, but it had already been 15 months. While she stared at the ground, I scooped up a handful of snow and tried to pack it into a snowball, but it wouldn't hold its shape. I tried again with snow scraped from the foot of my father's grave, and my mother said, stop doing that, you're going to make it look like hell. That night I fell asleep on the couch with the TV on and had a dream where my mother and I built a ladder out of fallen trees. It was a sturdy ladder, though it didn't seem long enough to reach the moon. But as we climbed the rungs, it just kept going and going, sort of unfolding upward as we climbed. The moon's surface was gray, not white. We still couldn't find the sun, but there was some light, enough for us to see our shadows, and the atmosphere felt warmer than the earth. I was excited, ready to look around the place, maybe find the spot where the astronauts had planted an American flag and left overlapping footprints. But we just stood there, holding hands and looking at the stars, waiting to be saved, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to feel better about ourselves. Overall, it was a good dream, a soothing dream, except for the end, when I got tired of waiting for salvation and understood that no one, especially not my father, was going to climb up and join us. So I let go of my mother's hand, and that was a mistake, because as I drew the ladder up, planning to break it down and turn it back into trees, I saw my mother floating off, growing smaller, like she was falling into a hole. I bounded off the couch, panicky but alert. The TV was off, but there was enough light from the kitchen to guide me. I found my mother in her bed, on her side, her legs drawn up. She was lying on top of the covers, wearing a nightgown, silky and white. She looked like a princess from a fairy tale, or a bride on her wedding night. I climbed onto the bed and snuggled up to her back, rested my hand on her shoulder, my body following the same shape as hers. I started to feel warm, then feverishly hot. I think it was the smell of her, combined with the heat of her thighs against my legs. I thought it best to roll away from her and lay on my back. After a few deep breaths, I began to relax. I closed my eyes and a gentle downiness fell over me. I thought about my dream my dead father, the frozen moon, the vacationing sun, about the coldness and the silence of strangers and the harshness of the cruelty in their stares. But none of that bothered me because for the first time in a long time I felt safe, secure, protected, and I let my mind drift until it settled into a deep, thick, dreamless sleep. Would you believe me if I claimed that when I woke up I was a different person entirely? Would you understand if I said that on winter nights when there is no moon, whether drunk, sober, alone, or in anyone's embrace, I have not slept so soundly since? The End Bob Thurber is the author of Paperboy, a dysfunctional novel, and a collection of exceedingly brief stories titled Nickel Fictions. Over the years, his stories have received a long list of awards and citations.
Listener-supported Bound Off is made possible by grants from the Kern Family Endowed Fund. Further support comes from the Google Grants Program. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.